Welcome to the Podglomerate. It's morning rush hour in Jerusalem. A pink haze hangs low over the streets. Cars, buses, and pedestrians jostle for space. Bleary-eyed schoolchildren trundle past shopkeepers, rolling up heavy steel doors. A man boards a bus. He stands beside early morning shoppers, retired old ladies with oversized canvas shopping bags, and soldiers on their way to the training academy. There are children, too, off to school on the other side of town. The man waits until the bus is full, until passengers are pushing up against the windows and doors. Only then does he open his jacket and detonate the explosive strapped to his chest. There's a flash of white-hot light and a low-pitched rumble, like distant thunder. The flames spread quickly. There's a hole where the street used to be, its edges charred and smoky, glass raining down like confetti. The bus itself is barely visible in the smoke its crumpled metal insides twisted and poking skyward. The ground beneath it is slippery with oil, tar, and blood. We zoom out. It's February 2007, and Major General Danny Yatone, the former head of the Mossad, Israel's National Intelligence Agency, is sitting at a mahogany desk playing a video game. A warning message pops up on his screen. It reads, Hamas claims responsibility for a suicide bombing in Jerusalem. How will you respond? Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. What you just heard is from the book written by my guest for this episode, Asi Barak. He created the game that painted that scene. It's a game called Peacemaker, and it is a landmark in the history of games with social impact. It puts players into the shoes of the decision-makers in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, allowing you to play through realistic scenarios from both perspectives. After creating this game, Asi has gone on to be a leader in the space of serious games. I couldn't think of a better guest to speak to the power of games for social change. Before it starts, I have to apologize for the random noises you might hear in the background. I put extra care into making this as clear as possible, so I hope that you can focus on the pearls of wisdom that SE has to offer. All right, I am here today with Asi Barak. He is the CEO of PowerPlay and the chairman of Games for Change. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Asi. Thank you. When did you first have the idea that video games could be used as a tool to improve the world? So, you know, I, I by no means was the first one to think about it. Uh, I think that uh, the real movement started around, you know, 2003, maybe, maybe around that time, people started to talk about serious games and games beyond entertainment. And I think that for me, I just uh, moved to Carnegie Mellon. I did see very clearly the potential of video games. I played games all my life, and I came to the U.S. from you know being in Israel all my life with the clear notion that there is a huge potential that is is largely untapped. You know, even though people started to do some work, it was very early, and uh, arguably even now it's still early, and there's 
a lot a lot of stuff we can do in terms of uh, games that uh, have purpose and value that goes beyond just entertainment your first first big project along these lines was peacemaker what were your main goals of peacemaker so yeah peacemaker is is a great uh, example it's really the next stage you know i'm coming to carnegie mellon and thinking how can i almost like prove the concept and <laughs> it's almost like i'm taking the most ambitious obviously not alone we had, we had a team but taking the most ambitious uh, problem we can think of, you know, one of the uh, unsolvable problems of the world, uh, one of the most sensitive, complex situations and deciding to make a video game about, which was on one end very challenging, on the other end got us a lot of uh, kind of uh, support and uh, attention. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was something very provocative and, People admired it. Uh, most people responded very well to you know, a group of students that is trying to go to uncharted territory uh, in video games, but also in terms of the conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of ballooned from there. You know, we started with a small prototype. We really just wanted to test the waters, do something modest. And next thing we know, you know, we're still in the first semester that we do this and we're already on the Washington Post, you know, so something started to uh, move very quickly. And right. the, more, the more response we got, we got, the more we invested in making sure that we don't, you know, that we don't embarrass ourselves, and that we do something very meaningful at the end, you know? Mm-hmm. And this game was about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and you grew up in Israel how did your personal experiences affect the design of the game? It clearly comes from my background. You know, I lived in Israel for 33 years. You know, that, that's my, that was my uh, core experience, my roots. Mm-hmm. I was also serving in the Israeli army, you know, and, and the mandatory service is uh, three, uh, three years. I was a captain in, in the intelligence corps. And I think that part of that idea that I was an, an intelligence officer and working a lot about on, on trying to decipher the other side and understand the other side gave me a lot of insight that translated into the game. Uh, obviously, because I was so grounded in the Israeli experiences, we, need, we needed to bring people from the other side, from the Palestinian side and people that kind of came from the U.S. perspective. But yeah, uh, absolutely my background led to the choice of the conflict and, and kind of putting the subject matter behind it. In Peacemaker, it incorporates, as I understand it, real news footage of things that have actually happened in Israel, in in the area of conflict. What led to that decision to be made to use to use real footage rather than uh, digital representation? Yeah, you know, when I when I speak or reflect on Peacemaker, I always think about some of the, those special attributes that, that the game had. That's one of them. You know, it was very unique to present uh, the news footage, whether it's videos and uh, images. People probably don't even imagine how tough it is because it meant that we actually licensed from Reuters hmm. that type of uh, content, you know, and um, we were the first video game ever to come to uh, Reuters as a news agency asking to license content. Hmm. And, and the choice was uh, that, you know, some of those images and context is so powerful and so important and even more so the game itself had this 
news quality to it mm-hmm. that we decided to go with the with the actual footage and we wanted people to you know very simply almost like play the news you know go into the what they hear about and listen to or watch uh, on a daily basis mm-hmm. and have a chance for the first time to to make some changes and make some impact yeah that that's a really interesting idea because i I think a lot of people kind of have have that desire. They see things on the news. They don't really like what they see, but they feel kind of powerless to do something about it. But by fusing the news and a game, you know, maybe that gives people a feeling of empowerment that they can do something about it. Absolutely. The other thing that I started to understand very well, and, and this, this was a surprise in a sense that we didn't necessarily plan for that, uh, people started coming to us and saying, you know, I understood the events and the context and current events in the conflict much better by playing the game than two hours than in, in what I did with traditional media for two years or, or two months. Wow. So there was something in the interactivity that is inherent in, in obviously games but there was something in the the fact that we could connect cause and effect, decision and consequences. We we connected those loops that in news are very tough to to connect. I can speak about it some more, but mm-hmm. really in, in at large, news media is suffering from lack of context sometimes, mm-hmm. and 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 very tough to get people to the depth of of complex problems and what. Peacemaker did very successfully is exactly that. What are some of the methods that Games for Change uses? Do they create the games themselves? Do they fund projects? What methods do they use to to get these positive impact games out there? So uh, Games for Change uh, is a platform. You know that that that's what really it's all about. Just like Sundance or Tribeca are about promoting film. Games for Change is about promoting this very unique type of video games that are beyond entertainment. Uh, there was one time when we actually tested the waters with creation. We executive produced Half the Sky, a project for women empowerment. We created four games. And it, it, was, uh, it was interesting, you know. On one end, it was a bit bizarre to be suddenly in the place of creation, but it, it got a lot of good attention and, and for the whole sector because it was such a high-profile project. Besides that, at, at times, Games for Change takes the role of almost like an advisor. Uh, it happened a lot that we helped organizations to think through their gaming strategy. So whether we, while we were not creating games, we were kind of trying to help organizations with specific problems. Again, at the end of the day, it's all, all that can help. But in my eyes, the real success will come from very passionate people that whether they're developers, funders, or uh, organizations that are going to to create their own games. When I wrote my first book, I dedicated the book to those stories, you know, those uh, very powerful success stories of of people that were um, at the front of, of that movement. What is it about games that you think makes them effective for change? You know, there's lots of different possible ways that you could go about trying to change the world. What is it about games that you think has potential to, to make a difference? It all comes down at the end of the day to the big difference between games 
and traditional media or most traditional media that is is at the end of the day pretty passive you know uh, it, it has to do with uh, people consuming stories and you know whether it's watching listening reading and and they're kind of consuming stories that someone else scripted for them uh, they could be very powerful but they have a beginning and and at the end of the day they're very passive in the process and and video games is the first time that you have a deep media that is still you know working with a lot of the elements of what what we used to see in in those kind of uh, pillars of entertainment but it's interactive it's it gives the players agency it lets them explore in their own pace in their own time every game is different you know you will play the same game that i do but our path and journey is going to be totally different We're going to focus on different things. We're going to learn different uh, topics. We're going to explore different areas. And that makes games so powerful in my mind for change and, and you know, discussion of uh, serious issues or social and political issues. What's interesting to me also is that uh, over time, you know, it moved from being just a, a replacement for uh, documentaries to, to starting to explore where games are really different even to the places of, for example, neurogaming. You know, the idea that games actually influence the, the brain in real time. So over time, we moved from the place of, okay, we're doing, we're doing an interactive version of a film to, to do things that are only possible with video games. You mentioned that games kind of can be a, a unique experience to the player and, and also the, the interactivity. What kind of interesting ways have you seen serious games take advantage of that to promote a positive message or you know create that impact you know one of uh, one of the games maybe i'll give you two examples that are very different one game that i i go back to is papers please and the reason i go back to is first of all it's a one-man creation you know something very uh, interesting that it's so lean and and so artistic when when one man produces everything And the second thing is that uh, it's also a unique look at video games in this, at, uh, you know, Games for Change in the sense that it's not coming to, to pound you on the head with a message. It's not something that, you know, is super specific and, you know, trying to kind of take you into a certain position. It's, it's really letting you experience something uh, very... Um, very interesting and a very unique position, letting you enter the shoes of someone who is taking, as a border a control guy, is taking very tough decisions that some of them are life and death, some very ethical decisions. It lets you make the choices, but people get out of that experience very rattled and, uh, and you know, it, it, it changes them in a way. The other example is, you know, I'm, I'm going from the one game, one man indie shop, To a, to a company that is dealing with neuroscience and really trying to become the first uh, FDA-approved game, you know, the first game that the doctor can prescribe. And it's, it's um, uh, aimed at uh, conditions from depression to dementia to uh, a range of, you know, stress and uh, ADHD. And the, the unique thing about it, again, it's you can't say it about any other media because what What they discovered is that the way they can design certain games, 
very different, by the way, from those drill games that are being, you know, advertised as as uh, games that are going to make you smarter. This is real research and very deep research that they can change your mind in real time, your brain, working on the plasticity of the brain and really work on those issues almost like medicine or in some cases to the same level as medicine. And um, it sounds science fiction, but one of those groups is very close to get that final approval and go to market with it. Well, that's really interesting. At the beginning of the show, you kind of mentioned that serious games are still kind of at early stages. So if getting FDA approval for a game as actual treatment for for people with a disorder, I mean, would you still consider that an early stage? And if so, then what do you see down the road in the future? What role do you think video games are going to play in, in society? It's going to be, a, if it happens, and, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the probability is, is that it's going to happen. It's going to be a major milestone. It's going to open a whole industry because, you know, if, if one game can get FDA approval, other games will get it, and other people will try to follow. I, I do still think it's early stage because, you know, it's going to be another pioneer that, that uh, kind of uh, put out the blueprint. But I think that, you know, to, to really uh, envision uh, how video games can change everything we do, uh, you know, you, you need to go to places that are very far, like, you know, uh, Ready Player One. I'm not saying that's the, the future that I want for video games, but I think that they're going into a place where they're going to be, uh, the experiences we're going to have in video games are going to be so powerful that reality will have a very tough time to, to compete with them. Uh, I see a place where we're going to help us with everything from education to training to um, learning something new in, in the workplace to uh, dealing with a, a tough problem that uh, you can't solve in any other way to really medicine and, uh, and, and you know, research. So it's really about video games and, and playability and, and that type of DNA getting into every aspect of our lives. We have to remember that we're still in a world where half, at least half of the population never played video games or never grew up with video games. So, you know, think about what happens when the gamers are going to be decision makers and gamers are going to be the executives and uh, it's already starting to happen. But, you know, once you get through the whole that generation growing up with technology and with, with the spread of devices and platforms, I can imagine a world where video games take uh, a big chunk of uh, everything we do and consume. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the questions I asked when I started the podcast entirely was, you know, what happens when the people who were shaped by games, you know, the people who grew up with games, what happens when those people start shaping the yes. world? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. What do you think about that? Do you see trends or, you know, other aspects of the gaming generation? What do you see in them as, as they start getting into, you know, leadership positions and start having power to to make changes i th i think this is this is one of the forces that is working 
that I, I, I kind of identify and other people identify. One of the forces is that the generation is changing, but other forces are, you know, technology. The, the perception of video games is changing. Uh, many more women are, are getting into video games, whether as players and, and the creators. Uh, I think the esports, uh, electronic sports, is a huge impact on the whole progression because suddenly you go out of the screen and, and playing video games becomes a social phenomenon, a social experience. So if you add up all those different trends, they all amplify what we're talking about, which is video games starting to to get into uh, more areas of our lives and, and starting to answer more questions or open more questions for us, you know? This episode of Plus 7 Intelligence is brought to you by Mr. Koya. Mr. Koya is laser-focused on creating awesome versions of the exact type of shirt that I wear all the time, short-sleeved, button-up shirts. If you like something loud and bold, you can get it there. Or if you're like me and want to be more low-key, they have some sharp, subtle options as well. I got the Mayura design because I'm trying to make bolder style choices, but this one will still fit in at my workplace. Plus, they are committed to sustainable practices that are great for their employees, their customers, and the environment. And they are always looking for ways to take it to the next level. As they put it on their website, it's kind of like Super Mario. You don't get to Yoshi's Island without making it through Iggy's Castle. Go to www.mrkoya.com slash plus seven intelligence. And at checkout, enter the code plus seven to receive 20% off your order and free shipping when you buy two or more shirts. Plus seven intelligence is also supported by the podcast History of Fun. History of Fun is about the hidden backstories behind the things you love to do. I really enjoy the premise of the show, and as you might suspect, I especially love the episodes about retro games or the invention of different board games. A recent episode that launched me into nostalgia was about the history of gaming on the TI-83 calculator. That's the calculator I had all throughout high school and college, and in fact, I'm looking at it right now. And I have lots of stories about games my classmates and I used to play on the TI-83 because teachers didn't know that they had games. But I digress. Take a listen. Hey, I'm Russ Frustick, the host of the History of Fun podcast. Each week we explore the hidden backstories behind the things you love to do. For example, did you know the Neopets were led by high-ranking members of the Church of Scientology? Also, this kind of blew my mind, the original Mr. Potato Head was, wait for it, a real potato. If any of that sounds interesting to you, new episodes of the History of Fun are added every Monday. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You know why certified management accountants work so well with robots? Because we both love bowling, karaoke nights, taco Tuesdays. Actually, it's because you can crunch numbers faster than any human being could, which means CMAs like me can set strategy and make decisions faster than we ever could. And that, my friend, is why we work together like hand and glove. Except hand has an office and glove doesn't. Yeah, well, hand has a CMA and glove doesn't, so... The CMA Certification. You've got to earn it. Visit cmacertification.org for details. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor. 
will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. For the people who are creating these positive impact games in your work with Games for Change, what are the main obstacles that people making these serious games, what are the main obstacles that they are facing? Yeah, so look, um, it's it's super difficult. And uh, and uh, that's, that's, by the way, why there is some criticism about serious games. It's very difficult to balance the fun part of games, you know, whether it's uh, someone who is too preachy, trying to to make something that is very heavy-handed and, and kind of loses the the magic of games, or or the opposite, you know, someone that is doing something that is magical, but you know, it's very thin on the on the level of uh, meaning and content. So very very tough, to, uh, you know, kind of balance to strike. And I think that the key is easy to say, much more difficult to do is to really um, align the the gameplay and the genre with with what you what you what you're trying to to do because at the end of the day you're creating experience and that experience is based on actions and unlike uh, you know all other media that is based on stories games could have stories but at at the core they have action and that action needs to make sense so if i'm I'm giving a very uh, crude example, but if I'm doing a Pac-Man game that is trying to tell you not to smoke, and and the way I do it is by dressing up the Pac-Man characters with with things that are related to the no smoking message, then I did a very poor job in in connecting the two, you know. And um, and when it's organic, you feel that it's organic, you know. When when the, the, there is a real alignment and the actions are meaningful, then it works. Yeah, that last example, it actually reminded me there was a, a public service ad, you know, a non-smoking promotion ad. And this was a long time ago when I was a kid. And the commercial was essentially a fake video game where you're playing a character who basically, if I remember right, you basically threw the nicotine patches or the nicotine pills yeah, <laughs> at like you know cigarette monsters or something. And yeah, when I was a kid, I thought it was a real game, and I like begged my parents to get it for me. I was like, "Look, it's it's it has a good message, <laughs> right?" Which is you know kind of funny that the story for that game and the actions in that game are are very different. You know, they don't make any sense. They don't mesh together, right? Yeah, I mean, you remind me by telling me that uh, anecdote. You remind me the story of uh, Dumb Ways to Die. You know, Dumb Ways to Die is a good game for ch- game for change. I mean, it's not only a game. Obviously, they have they have the series of mobile games, the the famous uh, viral clip. Pretty Dumb Ways to Die. Think about you know, think about the metro company in Australia in Melbourne coming to their ad agency, and they could have been so preachy and so conservative and you know, come up with something so uh, safe. And instead, though, I guess the ad agency convinced them to go very uh, provocative and say, look, you're dealing with a generation that uh, doesn't like to be preached to, that wants to uh, have fun, that wants to, that can have a joke even on de- about things like death. 
and uh, and let's say that uh, it's not safe to to get uh, run over by a train or, or stand too close uh, you know to the line because it's just a dumb way to die and we will show people all the other ways that are dumb ways to die but at the end we'll tell them here's another one and that's actually the message so I think the dumb ways to die is really an example of that and I always go back to that to show how you don't need only a good idea you need also some that the funder is willing to take a risk right right I can see one of the biggest obstacles to making a serious game that will have an impact is there's a lot of doubt about the value of video games in the first place how do you convince people who have a negative opinion of video games and convince them to believe that in fact video games can be used to to change the world and to yeah. benefit the world look I mean obviously I'm doing it for many years so it became easier and easier for me but what I discovered is that most people actually want to hear that message you know uh, <laughs> It's funny, you know, most people that I meet, even people that are totally unaware of, of what video games are or the, the idea that there are uh, good games out there or games that are artistic or games that are, you know, done very well and, and you know, even commercial games that are blockbusters. And even if they have violence in them, that they have very, very different attributes, um, I think that they want to hear that uh, that there's something out there that they are not looking at because that positive message resonates with them and makes them feel much more comfortable. So I, I have this experience that, you know, I'm talking with even parents, uh, you know, uh, now I have two girls, so, you know, parents in the school meet and talk, and, you know, I have this experience again and again that I'm speaking with, with a parent and it, it, the conversation goes on and on about video games, and then it, it ends up by them coming with a napkin to me <laughs> and asking me to write a few games that they should try with their kids. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, it's a huge gap. They, their kids are playing games. I mean, it's very hard to, to have a situation where they're not, whether on the iPads or computers. And if, if they're not playing at home, they'll play with their friends. It's either you join it or you fight it, but they want to join it. At the end of the day, they want to understand more. And, and if someone gives them the hand and shows them the way, they, they actually go with it. That's really interesting. I definitely hope that's the case. <laughs> I definitely want with the show to present a positive message and, and show some of the reasons why I'm generally positive about games. Hopefully that, that will be convincing for some people. Yes. And and you know it's 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 also um, <laughs> it's one thing to convince people about the media or about certain products, and then you go to the meta level of convincing them about the the approach, right? And you know you look at something like Quest to Learn, uh, the school in New York that was designed by game designers and teachers together, and that's a place where it's it's a meta level. It's the whole thing is a game, right? That's some of the places we're starting to touch, you know, with Pokemon Go and other experiences where, you know, it's no longer this kind of thing that you can put in a, in a box. It's starting to really mesh into our lives and change the way we think about traditional systems. And I think that 
this is a higher level of thinking about games that we start talking about more and more in the future. Can you tell us about about your company, PowerPlay? Yeah, so PowerPlay is a, is an agency, and we're doing a lot of work with different clients, whether uh, you know uh, large companies or uh, government organizations or universities. The, the common theme with most of our clients is that they come from a place of uh, ignorance around games, but a lot of confidence and reputation in what they do. You know, they might be very, very good at what they do. They might be leading in their field, but uh, they want to get into games or esports, and uh, they need someone to help them. And uh, what we discovered at, at PowerPlay is that we we have a unique ability to to be translators and uh, connect the dots between people and um, do a very good uh, matchmaking and because we understand both languages we we can speak the language of the suits and we can speak the language of the gamers and we see opportunities and we start to do more and more uh, projects like uh, you know work in Washington DC to become a strong esports destination starting an, an esports academy in Russia you know a, pro- a project like uh, what we did with Madison Square Garden where we helped them to bring Riot and League of Legends for the first time to New York all of those projects have, the, have a common theme that we were facilitating something and connecting two big uh, concepts together so you do a lot of work with esports do you see potential for positive impact through esports yes i mean uh, look uh, as everything in life it's not uh, black or white esports has also a lot of the sicknesses of uh, you know hardcore gaming culture whether it's uh, gender issues or harassment i mean again these are these are minority issues but they they obviously exist at the same time I I always look at the Afklas full and I look at the fact that just like sports, you know, traditional sports, by the way, has also a lot of dark spots and, and dark areas, but it also has this pr- premise that of excellence, of discipline, of uh, teamwork, of achievement. And I think that this is super exciting about esports and and the idea that you can actually do esports from everywhere in the world and, uh, you know, one day when everybody w- will have the same internet access, we'll be very equal in, in how we can play sports, probably more than any other traditional sport. That, that's super exciting to me, you know, the idea that a 15-year-old uh, kid could be a wizard in video games and and be become an idol is uh, fascinating. And as I told you before, I also like the social phenomena, the idea that, you know, people come and watch it and... and and watch it also online, obviously, by the millions. But the idea that they celebrate their passion in, in a very, very positive way. You wrote the book, Power Play, How Video Games Can Save the World. Can you talk about that book and, and who you were trying to reach with with the book? Look, I, I was trying to reach a, actually a, a much broader audience than gamers. <laughs> this is something that inherent in video games that you know, again, the perception we talked about, the isolation, you know, we put the joystick on the cover and actually I started to see how 
people that buy it or people that love games and, and people that are not playing games don't even think that it's a game for them. It's a book for them. So that, that was a bit of a challenge that the people that the book was really written for didn't necessarily understand it for them. My, my idea was, was really to speak to, you know, normal people that want to read a nonfiction book and understand the phenomena that they didn't understand before. And I think that it's not a book for gamers. It's not a book for experts. It's not a textbook. It's really telling very um, compelling uh, human interest stories about the people that made those projects that became very, you know, each one of them is kind of newsworthy, whether it's the first FDA-approved game, whether it's a, a Saudi prince that is making a game to empower women, whether it's Peacemaker that we talked about earlier, whether it's uh, Foldit, the game that... Uh, was uh, is being played to solve real world uh, science uh, problems. So you know each one of those chapters is dealing with this kind of uh, groundbreaking game or idea, and then we go deep into the story of how it was created and the ups and downs and the expectations and the disappointments. You know I'm very glad that it exists. But I'm now thinking about my second one, what what it should be. Do you have any uh, sneak peeks you want to uh, you know, you know, share? Yeah, one, one thing that we discussed and it's really interesting for me is that gap that we, we talked about with parents and kids. And, um, you know, the, that gap is, being, is going to be closed uh, more and more as, as, we, as we see gamers uh, mature. But at the same time, it's still pretty massive, especially as a parent. It, it pains me to see it. It pains me to see um, parents that can't really communicate with their kids about video games. It pains me to see the the, the fights that that are going on about you know trying to uh, kind of uh, limit the and and also you know the idea that people really on something so important really uh, they go without any guidance. You know they kind of improvise, and I wish that there was a way to help them. I wish there was a way to do something. It could be a book. It could be bigger than that, that really guides them and helps them and, and shows them in a fun way, right? An accessible way, how it's being done. One of my inspiration is a game that I use, it's a game, is a book that I used as a parent that is called The User Manual for a Baby, you know, which is a very, a very serious, thoughtful book. But uh, it's 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 a uh, tongue-in-cheek made as a user manual, and you treat your ba- obviously it's for uh, you know geeks, male geeks, and and it's super help. You know, I used it; it was super helpful. It it got me through that period, and it's you know also full of humor and uh, thoughtful and creative. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a definitely a big problem to tackle. You know, I know that. With my parents, they they actually gave me educational games, so they believed in you know the value of that. But at the same time, you know there were plenty of fights that we had about how much I was playing other games, you know when I would play, how I would play, etc. And uh, you know now that I have kids, I don't have a problem with them playing games. But now I'm seeing that sometimes those games kind of can interfere with things that I'm trying to teach them. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a difficult thing. 
especially because the the research around games, or at least the popular research and thought about games in society, really wasn't very positive on games and really didn't have a strong scientific basis on it. So there's there's a lot of bad ideas out there yep. that we still have to combat. Yeah. And the, and the look the the issue you're talking about is a very common one. I have it with my daughters as well. If if we're not going to put uh, constraints, they're going to play 24 hours a day. I mean, they're going to sleep maybe just when they're exhausted. But basically, they'll they'll take the iPad the first thing in the morning, and uh, <laughs> that's obviously not not the situation that we <laughs> we want to encourage. So as much as you know, I'll be the first one to admit how you know, how much games have benefits and how much they're important to their development, we also need to put the, the lines, you know, and, and I'm myself trying to be very educated about the lines, about what they play. I'm trying to play with them. I'm trying to help them to choose their games, but I'm also excited when they come with something that I didn't, I don't even know how they, you know, they're watching YouTubers. I don't even know how they got there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like influencers, YouTubers, and and I'm always surprised how how they they find it on their own. So yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a constant thing, but I think that the key is that the parent is uh, is playing an active role, you know, and not just uh, not just turning the switch on and off, but really trying to be part of it. All right, so you've given us a lot of really interesting things to think about. Where can people find you online on social media so that they can follow follow your work? I'm on Twitter uh, a b u r e k a burak. They can find me also on my uh, personal website asiburak.com. Powerplay is, is I hope that we'll do more and more to bring uh, esports and gaming to mainstream. So you know this is another thing, and maybe you know like the next book that we talked about is going to to come out uh, at some point. All right, great. Well, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes so people can find that easily. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, man. Bye-bye. I am so grateful that Asi was able to come on the show to talk about his work. He is fantastic because... He didn't just create a revolutionary game, but he has spent years shepherding other impactful projects, and he is still pushing the potential of games forward. He's absolutely one of the inspirations for this show. Fans of this show, and especially this series, will definitely want to pick up his book. Again, that's Power Play, How Video Games Can Save the World. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. We all know that pain of losing track of an interesting show and then not being able to find it or you do finally get back to it and you've missed out on some cool opportunities. Just save the hassle and subscribe while you have this friendly reminder. And join the discussion on the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server at discord.gg slash plus 7. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 7. The Podglomerate.
a sonic universe. Music for this episode provided by the ever-elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. <laughs>